All right. Well, here's what I'm going to say. I'm just going to put it out there right now that if you are uh, in the shade, it might get a little bit cold. So we're totally giving permission for musical chairs this morning. If at any point in the service you want to move to the sun, don't hesitate. Uh, and we're going to try to hang on to these guys in case they go flying. So uh, counting on you, Tibios. Grab that pole right there, okay? All right. You got it? We're gold. Okay, well, you can open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. And I, I'm just going to keep that closed because that's going to blow everywhere. I will preach from the Bible, don't worry. Uh, so we uh, are in Mark, chapter 7, today picking up at verse 24, where Pastor Rob left off last week. And just as a way of reminder, if uh, you've missed any past messages, you can go back online, calvarypalaceverdes.com, and listen to any of our messages there. And I want to clue you into something that you may or may not know about yet, which is that every Tuesday uh, we post a devotion to our website. And uh, our teaching pastors, which uh, consists of myself, Pastor Rob, and Ben Kai, um, we have been writing devotions on various Old Testament books. So we've uh, written devotions on the book of uh, Joshua, the book of Nehemiah, and we've just started the book of Jonah. And our hope is that as a church over time, that we would have devotional content through the entire Bible. And so um, go and listen to those or read those. And I think hopefully they'll just be an encouragement to you uh, in the middle of your week. So, but now with your Bible open to Mark chapter seven, let's get into our text today. We're going to start at verse 24. So let me read that verse where it says, Mark chapter 7, verse 24, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And so there's this repeated theme that's happening in the Gospel of Mark, and it's that Jesus, as he's going around and the crowds are following him, he's wanting to be purposeful to spend time alone. He wants to spend time with his heavenly father alone. He wants to spend time with his disciples so that he could train them in what he uh, will eventually call them to do to lead the church. And so uh, they don't know that they're doing that yet. They're still trying to figure the whole thing out. They don't even quite know who Jesus is yet. And yet he is being purposeful to break away and to find rest. Now, there's been this repeated theme of rest, and in fact, I think uh, this is the fourth message since we've started it as a church that I've talked about rest, and I'm just going to give you a friendly reminder because sometimes, right, certain things in our discipleship, um, it takes time for them to sink in. You know, it takes time for us to get it kind of through these thick craniums that we have. And one of those things is that I feel as a culture, sometimes we neglect the necessary rest that we need, both physically and spiritually, emotionally, that rest is such an important aspect to our discipleship. And Jesus, in fact, prioritized that kind of rest. And as his followers, as his disciples, we should follow that pattern of Christ. Now, Jesus, being the perfect son of God, both desired and sought out rest, and so we see that he takes a little trip out to the coast. That's right. Jesus goes on a little coastal vacation 
to the port cities of Tyre and Sidon, and he went with the intent that he didn't want anyone to know where he was going. Jesus wanted to go on vacation and not have anyone find him. And so Jesus, taking the disciples away on this little retreat, goes and finds that time. And maybe for you, you know, a coastal vacation sounds nice. Maybe you're a parent right now and your vacations are come at five minutes apart as you try to sneak into a back room because you've got these needy little people always pulling at you. And so you kind of feel with Jesus what it's like to have that constant demand upon you. And Jesus knows what that's like. He, he can sympathize with the fact that sometimes it's hard to find a break. But Jesus found that time, and again, he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. You remember that when he tried to go to rest in that desolate place across the Sea of Galilee, that the crowd stopped him. And then the, the disciples come, and they get wind-tossed by a storm, and they fail to enter rest again. And so he's seriously seeking this out. And um, the last time he tried to kind of get away, the, the, the crowds were saying to him, Hey, Jesus, you know how like you made a bunch of food back there? Can you do that again? Can you multiply more food so that we can eat? And what Jesus is ultimately showing the people is that Look, he did not ultimately come just to do miracles and just to multiply food and to satisfy us just physically. Jesus came for so much more. He came ultimately to die on a cross. And this is a critical moment in the ministry of Jesus and, and also in the training of his disciples. It's, it's now the third year of Jesus's ministry where we're at in Mark chapter 7. He's needing this little retreat with the boys to equip them and train them for what's ahead. But let me clue you into something right here, which is that where we are in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 7, we're at a transition point. Okay, we're at a transition point. So far, we've seen miracle after miracle. It's been action-packed. Jesus has been meeting the needs of people all around him. His popularity is certainly rising. In fact, I'd say it's peaking right now. The popularity and the fame of Jesus is at its height. And yet in this transition point, what we're going to see is a steady decline in the popularity of Jesus. Now, when I mean that is the popularity, I mean that in the kind that Jesus wasn't seeking. He wasn't seeking after this fanatical fanfare. He wasn't looking for what just people might get from Jesus, you know, just another meal that he might be able to give to them, another blessing, another miracle that he might be able to perform. What Jesus is truly wanting them to see is things like that his blood is true drink and his body is true food it's wanting to them to see who the heavenly father is and at this point what's going to begin to happen is as the fanfare diminishes and people are going to stop following him because things just he's starting to say things that become too difficult to follow 
People are going to be offended at the things that Jesus is going to start saying. People are going to misunderstand his teachings. And ultimately, Jesus is going to begin to suffer persecution. And look, if you, if you know the flow of the gospel, if you've read any one of the four gospels, you know where they go toward, which is the death of Jesus Christ, that, that he is feeling the weight of it. In fact, many Bible commentators believe that kind of at this point in the last year of Jesus, all of the directional, um, kind of when it, it, it gives direction of land and places where Jesus is going, it, it says this, it's all pointing toward Jerusalem. It's all going toward that place called Calvary, that place called Golgotha, where he would die upon a hill next to two thieves and murderers. Yet he himself being the spotless son of God. And so he tries to get away. He goes to Tyre and Sidon because he needs a little time alone with his disciples to really equip them. And yet you saw what happened, right? Verse 24 at the end there, it said, yet he could not be hidden. Now, I, lo I love what the NIV translates. Anybody read the NIV? A couple people back there. The NIV says he could not keep his presence secret. I like that translation. He could not keep his presence secret. There was just something too wonderful about Jesus. People knew the power and the compassion that he possessed. They wanted to be where he was in his presence. The presence of Jesus, it was desirous to be around. And you know, I, I hope that that would be true both for us as disciples and about us as disciples. I hope it would be true for us as disciples in that we really would desire to be in the presence of Jesus Christ at all times, that we would abide in him, that we would press through any barriers that might be there just in order that we might be in his presence. Even if we feel at times that God might be hiding his face from us, because sometimes it feels that way, that for us, we would be people that would press through so that we can be in the presence of Jesus. And would it also be true about us as disciples in that because we are Christ's representatives, that people would seek to be around us because we are the salt and the light of the world. And a light is not to be hidden, it's to be set upon a hill so that all may see. And so would we as disciples be those that display the presence and the power of Jesus so that others may desire it because of our representation of him? And I love this idea that the presence of Jesus could not be kept secret. Jesus could not be hidden. And look, I realize that Jesus did want to be alone. He really did want to have that time away. But don't you think that when people began to find him, even as hard as Jesus was trying to hide, that when people found him, he kind of had a little smirk on his face. You know, just kind of a little smile. Like, And maybe it's just Jesus wasn't that good at disguising himself or the loudmouth disciples would always tip it off of the, where they were going. But... But the fact that Jesus could not be hidden and people found him, I think it gave this 
real joy to Jesus that people were seeking him with all of their hearts. And so let's look at this first person who finds Jesus in the region of Tyre. Verse 25 to 26 says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came down uh, and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Jesus is there relaxing at this house, uh, this coastal house. Maybe he's in a hammock. I don't know, you know, if they had hammocks during that time. But he's just hanging out, relaxing in this home. And in comes this woman busting through the house, wanting to talk to Jesus. And then when she finds him, it says that she fell down on the floor. Literally, that she came down prostrate on the ground and she starts begging Jesus on behalf of her little girl. The situation is that this woman's daughter who was at home, wasn't present there, but was at home, that she had an unclean spirit. Now in Mark's gospel, we've already uh, addressed the reality of demons and that Jesus had power and authority to cast them out. If you want to go back, you can listen to a message where we talked more thoroughly about demonic oppression. However, in Matthew chapter 15, what we're told about this little girl, again, it's a little girl. It says she was severely oppressed by a demon. And the Bible doesn't tell us how or why she was oppressed in this way. It just states the facts. And it tells us that this Gentile woman comes to Jesus for help. She's asking him to cast out this unclean spirit because for some reason, maybe because that demoniac who went through the Decapolis told her about it, or somehow she caught wind that Jesus is both compassionate and merciful, powerful and authoritative and that he could do something for this little girl. Which, by the way, I just make this point, which is that Jesus is the only one who can help in a situation of demonic oppression. Jesus is the only one who can help in that situation. And so this woman comes to the one who can do something, and we don't know the name of this woman. We, we don't know the name of her daughter, we do know her race and where she was from. It says in verse 26 that she was a Gentile. Now, that just simply means that she wasn't Jewish. But more specifically, in Matthew, it says that she was a Canaanite woman. And then Mark says that she was Syrophoenician by birth. Now, Syrophoenician is, uh, you know, breakdown of two words. The first part, Syro, means that she was from Syria which is where you get the word Syro. And more specifically within Syria, she was from the region of Phoenicia, which is a Roman province within Syria. And now you might be thinking, well, why is this? I mean, great, that's where she was from, all this background. Why is that even relevant? Well, the fact that she was a Gentile and a Canaanite and Syrophoenician by birth actually brings to point the full weight of this encounter. You see, this woman had everything going against her when it came to cultural barriers. 
Jesus was a Jewish man, a rabbi. And according to the traditions of men, which Rob taught last week, is that the scribes and the Pharisees would teach that Jews were not to associate with Gentiles. In fact, certain rabbinical texts go so far as to even say that the only thing that Gentiles were good for was to fuel the fires of hell. And look, that kind of thinking obviously is not God's heart. And that kind of thinking can be found in the sinful hearts of men and women, both then and still today. Where there are these barriers that get set up between people based on their race, their class, their culture, their language. You could pretty much divide or separate on any attribute of a person. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus is going to break down those walls. So not only was this woman a Gentile, just in general, but she was from the region that was historically in most opposition to Israel. I mean, if you know biblical history, you know the Canaanites, I mean, you know, the, the Jews came in and took their land. <laughs> uh, some tensions existed there historically. And so she's got all these things stacked up against her. She was a woman, which at that time was a cultural barrier, still can be today. She was a Gentile, which was a cultural barrier. She was a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician birth, another barrier. And then she had a severely demonized daughter. And here she is, laid out on the floor, prostrate before Jesus, begging him to do something. What's Jesus going to do? Let's read verse 27. It says, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wow. <laughs> I mean, is that is that really there? Or do we, it's almost like you're like, wait, did I read that right? Because you've got this woman laying on the ground, continuously begging Jesus to help her little girl. And on the surface, upon first reading, without any contextual understanding, you might be thinking, whoa, what's up with Jesus? It kind of seems cold and indifferent and just straight up mean almost. What is he doing? Now, now look, Jesus really did want to get away. He really did want to have, you know, this first trip outside of Israel uh, since the beginning of his ministry. And he's probably thinking, I'm going to go into Gentile territory so none of these crowds of Jewish people can come and find me. But God had some divine appointments some ministry opportunities for Jesus. And could it be that Jesus knew, as he was going to Tyre and Sidon, he knew that this woman would find him? And could it be that the whole purpose for Jesus going on this trip outside of Israel into Gentile territory was so that he could teach his disciples something? Now, track with me for a second, because this isn't expressly said in the text. And yet, if you track with me for a second, I think that you'll see 
what Jesus might actually be up to right here. Because first of all, Jesus loved to put his disciples through real life situations in order to test them. You remember how Jesus just fed 5,000 people off a single serving of bread and fish, right? And in John's gospel, chapter six, it tells us that Jesus pulled one of his disciples away, Philip, and he says, hey, Philip, come here. Where do you think we could buy some bread and fish for all of these people? And in Mark six, it tells us he asked this to test him for he already knew what he was about to do. He wasn't going to go buy bread. He was going to miraculously multiply bread. Jesus already knew what he wanted to do. Could it be that Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon already knowing what he wanted to do for some Gentiles? Could it be that he's testing the disciples to see if they understand the heart of God yet? Because in this encounter that we looked at last week with the Pharisees and the scribes, this religious and hardened heart that wasn't understanding the heart of the Father, they, they were talking about washing hands and certain types of food that you could eat and you couldn't eat. And in our text last week, we saw that Jesus declared all foods to be clean. And a little bit later, you know, just clean, Peter doesn't get the whole point reason what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't figure it out until Acts chapter 10, and still it takes him a little bit of time. Do you remember what happened in Acts 10 when Peter is on a rooftop, and he has a vision of a sheet coming out of heaven, and in that sheet, there's all kinds of different animals that are kosher and non-kosher, meaning uh, Jews were, there was a lot of animals in there, a lot of bacon that Peter wasn't allowed to eat, And, and he said, Not so, Lord, my lips have never touched anything common. And Jesus, after saying to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat, says to Peter, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. In this, he spoke about the Gentiles and then how Cornelius would be the first Gentile to be saved uh, post-Pentecost and to see then God's plan for the Gentiles unfold after that. Because God has always had a plan for the Gentiles, the plan to save all nations. And this goes back all the way to the covenant promise to Abraham, where all the nations would be blessed through Abraham. Yet it took time to reveal this. It took time for God's people to see what God was going to do in order to bring every tribe, nation, and tongue to him. And it's taken an even longer time, I would say, for us. And still to this day takes so long for our hardened hearts to sometimes see that God loves all people. That all people are made in the image of God. Does it matter the color of your skin? what country you're from, what nation you're from, what language you speak, what gender you are. God loves all people. All people are made in the image of God and God desires to tear down anything that separates people out from one another. And so I don't feel like I'm going too far out on a limb to say this, that I think the whole reason Jesus took this trip to Tyre and Sidon was so that he could minister to some Gentile people to give his disciples in their training a foretaste 
an appetizer to the fact that as Ephesians chapter 2 says, that he would tear down the dividing walls of separation, that he would make one new man out of two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus is going to do that with this woman. And on the surface, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is just being offensive toward this woman. Let's read the verse again, verse 27. And he said to her, let the little children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, just to give you the interpretation there, the children are Jewish people and the dogs are Gentiles. Now, how's that not offensive, right? But let me remind you that God has always had a plan and purpose, a, a determined plan of his eternal redemption throughout the ages, God has known what he's wanted to do. And the way that God planned his salvific plan throughout the world was that he started first with the Jews, which by the way, he's not finished with them yet. And then he brought in the Gentiles. We see this in Genesis 12, Isaiah 49, the book of Romans, Ephesians. We see Jesus say things like, I've come only for the lost sheep of Israel, but then we read what Paul writes in Romans 1.16 where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe to the Jew first and then also to the Greeks or to the Gentiles. And when Jesus walked the earth, he did primarily minister to Jewish people. He did choose 12 Jewish men to be his disciples, and yet Jesus had a plan to bring Men, women, children, Jews, Gentiles, no matter who you are, he had a plan to bring people in. But did he start with some Jewish men first? Yes, he did. And that's God's wisdom, and that's God's plan. That's what he chose to do. Now, we're not going to go into more of that, but, but just realize that we are so blessed as Gentiles, and you might be Jewish here, but as Gentiles to be grafted into this great plan of salvation that God has, not to take that lightly. Now, this Gentile woman, she's on the floor begging him. The idea is that it's like incessantly making her request to Jesus. The disciples are actually getting frustrated with her. Matthew tells us that they're like, come on, Jesus, tell this woman to leave us alone, send her away. Jesus was being silent, wasn't responding to her. She's asking over and over and over again until finally he said this thing. I didn't come for the children, or I came for the children. I didn't come for dogs. And you know, in that moment, we could think that Jesus is, again, being cold and indifferent. You might expect the woman to rise up and respond. Who are you calling a dog? I'm a Syrophoenician woman talk to me like that and yet what do we see of this woman we see that Jesus is drawing faith out of this woman and because of her humility and her persistence which are two things that God cannot deny by the way two things God loves to see in our hearts is humility and persistence Humility. She brought herself low before him and he would not resist it. He could not stay silent at her humility. And then persistence. God loves when we come again and again. It's a picture of intercession, how we're supposed to come to God 
Um, you know, James says, we have not because we ask not. And Jesus taught many parables on the persistence of prayer, that if you ask fervently, God does not deny that kind of faith and persistence. So we've seen her humility, we've seen her persistence, but he still calls her a dog. Now, let me, let me lessen the offense of this for a second, which is that the typical word for dog that would have been used at the time was the word kuon, K-U-O-N, kuon. But Jesus used a diminutive of that word. He used the word kunarion. Now, a diminutive is to denote something small. So in our English language, we have the word dog. Now, the diminutive of dog is doggy or puppy. So Jesus wasn't just calling her like this big dog, you know, because like you're the little puppy, the little house pet. So it definitely lessens the offensiveness at it. Yet there's still enough offense to where this woman could have turned away. And I'll just add this as a point of application, which is that if you're easily offended as a person, you might have a hard time with Jesus. If you are easily offended, you need to realize that Jesus does say some things at times that come across as pretty offensive. That on the surface, you might misunderstand him, but when you realize what he's saying, that he speaks truth, And as Jesus said, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Jesus had to say, blessed is the one who is not offended at me because Jesus sometimes says things that to us seem offensive. So hopefully you're not an easily offended person. Jesus finally says to this woman, let's read it again. Let the little children come first for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little puppies. And then she responds in verse 28 through 30, but she answered and said, yes, Lord, yet even the little puppies under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. (laughs) That's so good. She took note, or Jesus took notice of the woman's faith humility and persistence this woman interceded for her daughter and jesus did something about it the son of david brought deliverance to a canaanite woman and showed her his compassion and mercy and what i love about this is that the girl who was delivered wasn't even present she wasn't even there which tells me something, which is that the faith of a praying mother brought results. And if I may encourage parents here today, another quick point of application is that children are powerless against praying parents. You realize that? You might be able to talk to your children, lecture your children, argue with your children, and you might not see very many results from those kinds of things. But did you know that in, in humility and in silence and in persistence, you can pray for your children and they can't do anything about it. And God hears the prayers of persistent parents 
And if you have perhaps a child that has been bound, whether it's so severe that you would say it's like demonic oppression or it's just bound in sinfulness to the world or whatever it is, those children are powerless to praying parents. And maybe that's an encouragement to you today. Don't lose heart in praying for those that you love and want to see brought before Jesus. Now, we do have one more encounter to look at today. And don't worry, we don't have another 25 minutes of a sermon. We're going to wrap it up with this last part of the story in verse 31 to the end of the chapter. He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So he goes to the Decapolis. Again, this is where the man who was demonized, went and proclaimed after he had been healed all that Jesus had done for him. And then verse 32, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So again, these people found Jesus, brought a man that he couldn't bring himself to find Jesus, and presented him for Jesus. Now, you've heard me say this a lot, right? Bring the what? You guys say it. Bring the what? Bring the real you to the real Jesus. You've heard that so many times. But did you know that you can bring your real spouse to the real Jesus? You can bring your real child to the real Jesus. You can bring your real friend to the real Jesus. Hopefully we realize that we can bring ourselves to Jesus, but let's not forget that we're also called to bring others to Jesus. That there's some people who don't have it within themselves to bring themselves to Jesus because they don't have faith to do that. And yet by our prayer, by our intercession, by our persistence, we can bring others to Jesus, and Jesus many times saw other people's faith and did the miracle for the person that was brought. So bring the real you by all means, but don't forget to bring other people to Jesus. Whether that's physically, as you maybe bring them to church, but most certainly spiritually in prayer, would you bring them? Now, this man was blind and mute. In verse 33 to the end, it says, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue, and looked up to heaven and sighed, and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Isn't that so amazing? <laughs> I mean, if, if we've seen today some strange things that Jesus has done, he's spoken some strange words, and now he's doing some strange actions as he's doing this miracle. He, he is doing works in unique ways that he sees fit. Now, Jesus is still doing miracles, but again, I'm saying there's a transition that's taking place where he's ultimately not coming as a miracle worker who sometimes preached, but he came as a preacher who sometimes did miracles. And he came to proclaim the kingdom of God. And here, yes, he's demonstrated. He takes the man aside privately, pokes him in the ears, <laughs> spits in his hand, grabs him by the tongue, looks up to heaven. Why did he look to heaven? Well, because that's where healing comes from. In heaven... There's no sickness. 
People aren't blind, mute, deaf, lame in heaven. And Jesus was praying for the Father to bring sort of like a a pay advancement, you know, like a like an early deposit of healing in this miracle. We're not promised healing this side of eternity. We are promised full and complete healing in heaven. And that is where healing comes from. And so Jesus looked to heaven, and what did he do? He sighed, you know. Why did he sigh? I think he sighed because Jesus felt the weight of, of this fallen and sinful world. He felt in himself the pain that this man had experienced. He knew what was binding him, and he knew that he wanted to release him. He said, Epfatha, which means be opened, and immediately that man spoke clearly and was able to hear. An instantaneous miracle that, again, was so incredible. And I love that even though Jesus, in verse 36, charged them to tell no one, the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it, unfortunately. But look at verse 37. It says, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Such a great way to end this morning, which is that statement. He has done all things well. He just knows how to minister to others. How to love in the way that people need to be loved. He knows what each individual needs for their unique situation. He knew what that man needed. He knew that for some reason he needed to be poked in the ears and grabbed by the tongue, and it needed to be private. You know, where else would we go for such amazing works? Who, where, who could we go to who has done all things well? None of us could say that of our lives. None of us could say, I've done all things well. Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, could do all things well. Now, as we end here, I'm going to close in prayer and then encourage us with just one last thing. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. God, thank you for your great word that's encouraged us today. Would you bless your people as we continue to worship you? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, last thing. You know, it's, it's easy to see stories like this in the Bible and just relegate them to the past and think, wow, Jesus worked really uniquely and powerfully in those moments. But if you really think about it, Jesus still works this way. Now, how would you possibly be able to experience the presence of Jesus and the power and compassion of Jesus in this kind of way? It really is simple, you guys. He operates the same way now that he did then, and it is by faith. So let's just take the woman alone as an example. In faith, she sought and found the presence of Jesus. In faith, she persisted past the barriers to be with him. In faith, she made her request known. In faith, she persisted through the silence. 
In faith, she humbled herself to receive, and in faith, she received what she came to Jesus for. It was all in faith that she came to Jesus. From the moment she arrived and implored him to the moment that she received from him, it was simply by faith. Now, it came in a kind of interesting roundabout way with unique methods and unique words that God spoke. So I don't know what you need today. I don't know if you need salvation. I don't know if you need physical healing. I don't know if you have a son or a daughter that you've been praying for for years and you're giving up because you've never seen transformation. I don't know if it's your marriage, if your friendships or, or just fear and anxiety that you're experiencing on the daily. I don't know what you're experiencing, but Jesus does. And Jesus does all things well. So look to him and look to him with faith. Amen. Amen.